the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday. It's 4 o'clock. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls, answering your Bible questions, questions about anything going on in your life, whatever's on your heart. All you have to do is dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And as always, I remind you that if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free and you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We got some stuff going on here uh, tonight at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be teaching Leviticus chapter 18. And by the way, this is just a, this is a Bible study for mature audiences. And um, it's about um, our sexuality, how God wants us to use it, and who is the authority in our lives. So that is tonight at uh, 7 o'clock. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. And, of course, Paula will be live in studio with us tomorrow on the Date Day edition of the program. Okay, let's take a phone call. We've got Alan on line one from San Antonio. Alan, thanks for calling early. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. God bless you. How, how are you been? I'm doing well, Alan. How about you? Oh, it's just doing as well as possible. Uh, I was just praying for you and for uh, a bunch of loved ones. So, um, And then I had a Bible question for you as well. Okay. So. Well, I appreciate your prayers. It's good to hear from you, Alan. Good to hear from you, too. Um, the, uh, about the promises uh, for the... Um, Hebrews in the Old Testament, and then they're not for us Christians. They're for the New Testament promises and all those things. And so uh, I remember you talking about that, and other people have talked about it. And so uh, when I when I teach people Bible study, I try to put that in perspective. And so is it uh, is it um, it's so nice to study the, the Old Testament and some Psalms, and you put a lot of hope in a lot of Psalms and things like that when you pray, mm-hmm. and a lot of things in the Old Testament. And sometimes when you hear people say that, that the promises aren't for us, that you feel like maybe, I don't know, you feel kind of uh, uh, disappointed. And so um, I was going to ask you about that, because sometimes when people are really sick, they pray the Psalms and they and for hope and things like that. And then when you find out that promises aren't for us, then you kind of feel like empty or something. Um, is there hmm. some kind of way, way to clarify that? Or? Yeah, let me let me try, Alan. And I appreciate the way you frame the question. 
Um, uh, typically, it's not framed that way, and um, I, I hope I'll leave you with a lot of hope when this is over. A couple of things. We can never divorce the context of the passage from the meaning of the passage. For example, when um, God tells us in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, I know the plans I have for you, uh, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, uh, plans to give you hope in a future. Um, the, 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 the immediate context of that, of course, is that the Babylonians are bearing down and are going to completely destroy Jerusalem. And, and what God is saying to Israel, I'm going to keep all the promises I made to Abraham. I'm going to keep all the promises I made to Isaac and to Jacob and to David. Uh, and, and so so I have those plans. And what happened there was uh, Israel disqualified themselves from the promises. They went uh, whoring after other gods. They They were willfully disobedient, not only that, but murderous toward the prophets that God sent time and time again. And so what God was saying in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, to the very tiny remnant that was going to be left there, he was saying, don't worry, my word will not fail. Uh, I will keep every promise that I ever made because I know your future. The problem is that we Christians, we want to take that promise and possess it. Now, we can take the principle. We can understand that God does have a plan for us. This is very New Testament. We we know God has a plan for us. We know that he loves us. We know that he wants to bless us. And all we have to do is walk in his will, to walk in obedience, and we will be in that place of blessing. And whatever God's plans are for each of us individually, we'll do that. But remember that God wasn't speaking to individuals there. He was speaking to the nation of Israel. And he says, my promises are never going to to pass. Now, you said something, Ellen, that I think was really important for everybody to understand. You said, you know, you read those promises and, and you realize they're not for you and you're disappointed. Every promise in the Old Testament were actually given greater, infinitely greater promises in the New Testament. So all you have to do is recognize the promise God has. So principally, we can take those promises and we can say, okay, Lord, if I do this, then you're going to do this. I know the plans. Uh, I know you have plans for me. And, and, and I'm going to keep my head up because you're going to walk with me. And I have a hope and a future. But we have to keep the context of the passage. You know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. Every national day of prayer, that prayer is offered. Well, that was a prayer to obstinate, disobedient Israel. And they did not humble themselves and pray. So the principle that we can take in a passage like that is we can say, okay, Lord, I want to humble myself. I want to bring my prayers before you. And I want to walk in the fullness of your will. And we have countless New Testament promises, Alan, that will do that very thing. The Psalms are another matter. The Psalms are poems. And there's a lot in the Psalms that we can take. I love the fact that David, it just bears his heart. Uh, the imprecatory Psalms, he, he, he wants to punch somebody's lights out because they're, they're enemies of God and enemies of his. Um, we understand that's our human nature. That's the reaction. But we also have to remember that David didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him that you and I do, Ellen. And so what we do is we say, okay, Lord, um, Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for them. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for them. I'm not going to want to punch their lights out like David did. I'm going to want to pray for them. So, again, it's important that we don't divorce the, the passage from its context. Now, let me also say this, Ellen, to you and to everybody else in the audience. One of the things that we really need to do when we're, and I love the Old Testament. You know that, Alan, and, and I've taught through all of it, uh, most of it. Um, um, still, we have greater promises given to us in the New Testament. And we don't have to worry about the context because those passages and those promises are written to us as Christians. Can we still get some value out of the Psalms? Of course we can. We see the heart of God there. We experience his love for us and his passion for us. 
We understand that he meets David. We understand that he meets the other psalm writers in their need, in their time of need. Um, But the New Testament says exactly the same thing. So um, hermeneutic number one, find out who's God talking to in the passage that you're studying and then keep it in context. And then you can apply the principle, if not the specificity, of the passage of Scripture in your own life. And Alan, one of the reasons this is so important is because, um, you know, we have people who will just name and claim every promise and, and, and have no understanding at all to whom the promise was made and under what circumstances. Again, that way we can't even see the principle because we're praying virtually outside the will of God. Wonderful question, Alan. Thank you very, very much for the call. Here is a question. This one is from, uh, it is anonymous. Um, Why do you say lying is always wrong when Rahab lied and ended up in Hebrews 11? I think lying is sometimes okay. Well, anonymous, two things. One, you understand that Rahab lied not because of her great faith. She lied because her faith was weak. Now, it's understandable that her faith was weak. She was what we would call a brand new baby believer. Um, She was from people that were enemies of God. But she saw the power of God. She knew that that Israel was going to prevail. Um, and, And she responded to what she knew about the Lord. But I'm sure uh, you lied when your faith was brand new. I lied when my faith was brand new, but I lied because my faith was weak. And it's never, ever uh, a commendable thing to lie. Now, that's the first thing. Number two is Jesus said the devil is the father or the source of all lies. Now, what you've got to do is decide whether or not it's ever okay to let the devil speak through you or to influence you that way. And for you to say, I think lying is sometimes okay, um, usually when you lie, and I'm being general because I don't know you, but usually when you lie, it's so that you benefit from something. How can that ever be okay? Now, is there forgiveness when we lie? Yes, but if we lie counting on God to forgive us, well, then we're really not asking for forgiveness because we're going to do it again and probably again and again and again. So it's never okay to lie. Now, we don't have to say everything. Um, you know, we have to be direct. Um, but, but lying simply is a sin. And why would God ever be okay with something that separates you from him in fellowship? So if you think it's sometimes okay to lie, I want you to understand, every time you lie, you've broken fellowship with God. And until you repent of that lie, I mean genuinely repent, not okay, Lord, I'm sorry. But I mean, I don't want to lie anymore. Until you do that, that fellowship is broken. And just by the way you frame the question, you you still haven't repented for your lies. That means your fellowship with God is broken. I know everybody waiting on the phone, so let me tell a very quick story. Um, when I got saved, and, and my uh, transformation was was quick and it was radical. Um, but I I had some bad people that were chasing me. And um, I was lying to him all the time. And the Spirit of God, even as a new believer, was really and truly convicting me. And the conviction got so heavy, I remember crying out and saying, Okay, God, I would rather die than tell one more lie. And I meant it with all of my heart. But then God surprised me. Uh, One of the people that were chasing me uh, just happened to show up at my office one day. And and my first thought was, well, Lord, I, I wasn't ready for this. I'll, I'll, I'll be ready Monday. You know, it's just one of those things. And and uh, I remember the Holy Spirit saying, don't lie. And I said, okay, I'm not going to lie again. I told the truth to that guy. And I thought he was really going to react badly. And instead, I got to see the hand of God move through this guy who had nothing to do with God. I mean, he forgave me of the debt. He said, I just, I, we were friends. We're not friends anymore because you lie to me every time you open your mouth. 
And I said, I'm so sorry, I will never lie to you again. And God really taught me, if he can move the heart of that guy that I owed a bunch of money to, well then, why would I ever lie again? And I hope I haven't. I'm sure I've responded in the flesh a few times and and told some little white lies. But here's the thing. If that happened, and I don't remember specifically, but if that happened, Anonymous, um, I knew it wasn't okay. I knew that I needed to repent. I hope that really hits home in your heart. Lying is never okay. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Rachel. Pastor, and I know Catholics practice the re-crucifixion of Christ in their Mass. Is that something that is seriously wrong enough to leave the church? The answer, Rachel, is yes. Now, I'm going to quote from their own catechism. Um, the, the Eucharist is the bloodless sacrifice of Christ time and time again. Or I think, I think the words in, their, in the catechism is over and over again. So, yeah, that's seriously wrong doctrine. Our Bible says that Christ was sacrificed once or crucified once for the forgiveness of sins. And if we're putting him on that cross again and again and again, and, and again, they understand it's wrong. It's a bloodless sacrifice. But nonetheless, it is in their theology a sacrifice that is repeated uh, instead of the once for all. And Jesus isn't on the cross. We all know their crucifix um, um, has Jesus on the cross. Um, maybe that in and of itself is not a reason to leave the church. But this doctrine really is, because it's heresy. So if the Holy Spirit's knocking on your heart, Rachel, then um, there's going to be a lot of doctrinal issues and errors that you're going to encounter. Uh, the Spirit of God is leading you. This is discernment, and the Spirit of God is leading you away from the Catholic Church. Doctrinally, it's important. When Paul was writing his last letter to Timothy, the most personal of all of his letters, he told Timothy, a young man, he said, watch your life and doctrine closely. Now, we understand what's your life, but why doctrine? Well, doctrine is important. It forms the way you live your lives. And so what we need to do is have a solid doctrine, something that we can have absolute confidence in. This is the will of God. This is the word of God. And that's why we're told to rightly divide the word of God, to be workmen, in your case, a workwoman who rightly divides the word of God. And Rachel, I can tell you, uh, there's great freedom that awaits you. There's great joy and abundant fruit once you break away from doctrinal error. And the Catholic Church is full of doctrinal error. Now, they have the same Jesus, same Father, same Spirit. But beyond that, there's really problematic issues doctrinally. Read your Bible, do what it says, and let the Spirit of God lead you. And what will happen, Rachel, you'll go into a church where the Bible's being taught, and it'll be like walking into a room and the light's going on all of a sudden. Great question. And I love hearing that people are sort of coming out of the, the darkness of, of uh, bad doctrine. Billy says, uh, Pastor, is it okay for kids to receive communion? Um, yes, I think so, Billy. Um, we tend here at Calvary Chapel to err on the side of grace. We can use communion and an explanation of communion to help train kids, to raise them up in the way they should go, uh, explaining what the bread and what the cup uh, represents. We had a really funny story. Uh, one time, one of our kids was leaving the toddler room and going into big kids' church. We do that uh, at the end of the school year every year. Um, kids that are going into the next grade, well, then they, they also change here. And one of the little kids says, says I don't want to go back to, to big church. And, and his mom said, well, why? He goes, their snacks are crummy. All they gave me was a little cracker and a cup of, of juice a little tiny cup of juice. And we just laughed because that was, he thought it was snack time. We always would give snacks for the toddlers, but for the older kids, 
um, it's time to, to grow them. So, so yeah, we have no uh, illusions that that um, they know what they're talking about, but it gives us a chance to explain it. And there's nothing magic by taking communion. doesn't mean they're believers. But what we're doing is taking Jesus' counsel. When he said, suffer not our little children to come unto me, we're bringing the kids to him in the right practices. And at some point, they really and truly do understand what the cup and the bread means, what the value of it for them really is. So Billy, rather than say, no, until you're old enough to understand this, um, I think is is withholding a blessing from the kids. And I know there are people that disagree with me on that, and I guess that's okay that they disagree. Um, but I, I feel the same way about baptism. Uh, there are a lot of times when kids will come up, we, we're having a big baptism event, and the kids will hear about it and say, well, I want to get baptized. And then we have the kids come to me or Pastor Ken or one of the other pastors and, and say, uh, Pastor Ron, I want to get baptized. And we say, why? And, and we want to know that they have a basic understanding of what it is. But we're not concerned about the fact that maybe they don't really understand it enough to mean it yet. Um, that's between them and the Lord. Uh, but again, we're training them uh, in those two sacraments of the church. And by the way, there are only two sacraments of the church, uh, communion and baptism. And we want to expose them to that as best we can. Here's a question from Danny. He said, uh, my wife left me and married another man, and now they have a child. Can I remarry? Um, Danny, yeah, you can remarry. When when your wife, uh, ex-wife, is uh, belongs to someone else, you're free to remarry. Now, I don't have any details about the circumstances of your uh, separation and divorce, um, uh, what I would say is if that you bear some responsibility for the separation and divorce, uh, if you were unfaithful, if you were abusive or any of those things, uh, I wouldn't worry about getting remarried until I was right with God. That requires repentance. But generally speaking, once your wife is married uh, to somebody else, um, then she's out of the picture with you. Um, and, and, um, um, you are free to remarry. One of the things, and I get questions often about uh, biblical reasons for divorce and then when it's okay to remarry. Um, the victim in a marriage is never penalized by God, uh, by 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 the Lord saying you can't marry somebody uh, again. Um, um, there's always grace for the victim. There's always grace for the victim. So Danny, I hope that answers your question and God bless you, and I hope uh, everything has um, been repented of and you're able to enjoy somebody else. Ralph says, I know there are verses that justify pre, mid, or post-tribulation raptures. How can we know which is correct? Well, Ralph, I'm going to challenge you right away. There is not a single verse in the Bible that justifies a mid- or post-tribulation rapture. Those things cannot be true, so there cannot be a verse correctly taken in context that um, validates a mid- or post-trib rapture. Let me also add a pre-wrath rapture. That's sort of a new one, uh, but but has grown pretty popular. So there just isn't any. Now, there there are verses that are misunderstood, uh, taken out of context, um, Jesus said, I know in this world you will have tribulation. And people say, well, see, we will have tribulation. But it doesn't say the great tribulation. And there's two completely different things. We'll have trials. We'll have difficulties for sure. But we will not go through the great tribulation. We're not appointed to wrath, but to salvation. Paul makes that clear. And if we're appointed um, um, uh, to salvation, um, how can we be the objects of God's wrath being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world when, in fact, we have received Jesus Christ. Our sins weren't washed over. God just didn't wink at our sins and say, okay, let's forget about them. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for your sins and mine, Ralph. The wrath of God was poured out. Now, all you have to do is read the Bible, Old Testament all the way through to the New, and uh, the Great Tribulation The time of Jacob's distress or Jacob's trouble is clearly portrayed 
as the wrath of God. How could God pour wrath out on you, Ralph, or me, if we're born-again believers and that wrath has already been poured out? That would render Jesus uh, unjust. In Genesis 18 and 19, when Jesus and the destroying angels were going to Sodom and Gomorrah, and because Abraham was a friend, Jesus told him what was up. He says, we're going to go in and see if everything is as bad as we we hear it is. And if it is, there's going to be judgment. What did Abraham say? He said, surely the righteous judge of all the earth won't judge the righteous with the wicked. And Jesus, right then, he could have said, he could have said, well, I can do what I want. I'm God. But he didn't. He said, you're right. I will not judge the righteous with the wicked. So if I find 50 righteous men there, I'll spare judgment. And they negotiated all the way down to a very small number. So, Ralph, there are no verses at all that justify a mid-pre-wrath or post-trib rapture of the church. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the show, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the second half of our Wednesday show, 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We have an anonymous question that just came in uh, over our email line. The question is, where is the explanation in the Bible stating that women no longer have to cover their heads and be silent in church? After reading what Paul was preaching, I wanted the clarification. Now, there's a couple of things that you have to understand about the First Corinthians passage. This passage is about authority, submitting to authority. It's not really about head covers. The church at Corinth was a mess. In in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to them uh, about um, um, being out of control. I mean, there, there just wasn't anything at all that was really good going on in Corinth. And so the, the letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, was, was Paul basically, uh, as a loving father would, scolding them or disciplining them. He was talking about order. And um, when it says being silent in church, um, there were, and the Greek words are very telling, uh, but but they were they were shouting over the men in the church. Now, in some church cultures, specifically in Corinth, the men would sit on one side of the room and the women on the other, or the women would sit in the back and the men in the other. That was never direction that was given to the church. That was just what they did with their traditions. And because they were out of control, the women refusing to be under the authority of their husbands is very important to understand uh, Paul saying, no, that's out of order. Now, when we get to 1 Corinthians 11, uh, where that is, um, it starts off in, in verse 3. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So the issue here is authority, order in the church. It's not about head coverings. That was a local um, situation um, that needed to be addressed. In Corinth, one of the things we need to remember, there was a, a, a open public prostitution going on. And the women in Corinth who were the the temple prostitutes, they would shave their heads. And it was sort of their way of advertising. I am available for worship. And I say that with tongue in cheek, but that's what they would call it. You can worship these gods and I'm available to worship. So when he's talking about being under the authority, that's the head covering that he's talking about. And the veil, when we get down uh, to verse five, I think it is. Let me get there for a moment. Um, um, it says, uh, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered. Now, that's not um, a literal scarf that they're talking about. What he's saying is it's symbolic uh, of her submission to her husband, that she's under authority. 
So uh, rather than coming with a bald head saying, I'm available, or that would be the message that she would be giving, it says if she if she does that, she's dishonoring her head, not her physical head, but her head, her authority. That's her husband. That's why it says it is just as though her head was shaved. So that is a local cultural situation. Um, we know that in Corinth and other places, there were women who had the gift of prophecy. And women certainly could worship. So he wasn't saying that women had to be silent in the church. What he was saying is that they had to be in order and under authority in the church. And this, Anonymous, was correction. So the idea now, and you'll see this in Orthodox churches, uh, you see it in, in, in Muslim churches. Women have to cover, in some places, their whole heads and bodies. Um, that That's just a, a, a tradition that that never was quantified in Scripture. Nowhere in the book of Acts do we see uh, people who are wearing scarves or being forced to wear scarves. Now, many of the Jewish women who converted to Christ, they would wear head coverings because that was the cultural tradition. But we're no longer under that. Now, let me say this also. The, one of the ways that we know, and this is a, a hermeneutic to remember, one of the ways that we know that this was addressing only a cultural uh, issue, a, a cultural problem, was that in contrast to, say, First Timothy chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent, and the silent is in the context of being in charge. And then he goes to Genesis to establish the foundation for it. And this is the hermeneutic. We know this is something that is for everybody, all the churches of Jesus Christ for all time. For Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So we can take that First Timothy passage and say, yes, that does apply to church, orderly worship in the church. Um, but in the First Corinthians passage, chapter 11, there's no such... Um, reference to Genesis. Um, um, so hermeneutically speaking, the foundation is missing and we know that he was dealing only with a local problem in the church, a church that was out of control. So there's there's no place where it says you have to wear a scarf. Paul is simply correcting the woman who did not want to be under the authority of her husband. It's that simple. can't be under authority to God if you refuse ladies to be under the authority of your husband. That that puts you out of fellowship with the Lord. And, and uh, you know, of course, when we're out of fellowship with the Lord, our prayers aren't heard. Um, the power of the Holy Spirit is absent. So that's what he was saying. So 1 Corinthians does not say this is a pattern. In First First Timothy, he'll say, and this is the way we do it in all of our churches. So very different situation. And if you're in a church where they're legalistically saying that you need to wear head coverings, uh, you're in a very legalistic church, a church that really doesn't understand the Bible and, and probably not a healthy place for you to be. Now, I would be interested, Anonymous, you don't have to write me back, but if this is a man who's writing this question, I would be interested to know that rather than a woman. If it's a woman, very sympathetic. No, that's just bad Bible. Uh, uh, Isogesis, or that's Isogesis rather than Exegesis. And um, um, probably not a healthy place. If it's a man, um, you should know better. You should know better. How can your wife submit to your authority if, in fact, you're a legalist? Just read your New Testament. Hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question. This one comes from Nathan. Uh, He said, will you explain the ministry of the 144,000 witnesses in the Great Tribulation? Yeah, Nathan, uh, these are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And I always say that because there is nonsense going around that there are 10 lost tribes of Israel. None of them are lost. God knows exactly where they are. And he demonstrates that by in the Great Tribulation, the last seven years of history on the earth as we know it, he demonstrates that he knows where they are, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Now, here's what their ministry is going to be. They're going to be endued with um, supernatural power. They're going to be protected by God. 
In other words, they're invincible. They can't be harmed and they can't be hurt or killed uh, during the Great Tribulation. So God is going to protect them. He marked Cain. Well, he's going to, in some fashion or form, mark these people so that they're going to be safe. And they're going to be traveling literally all over the world. And their ministry is going to be witnessing, testifying about Jesus Christ. And they are going to lead the greatest revival by far in the history of the world. That means people are going to get saved. Now, unfortunately, the people that get saved are are mostly going to be martyred for their faith. It's going to cost them their lives, but they will be um, men and women who are on their way to heaven. In the book of Revelation, when you get to chapter 5, you see... Excuse my voice. Uh, when you get to chapter 5, you see them under the altar of God. And they're crying, how long will God till you avenge our death? Well, in, in um, um, the Great Tribulation, when they get saved, they will be martyred. Um, but, but they're going to be the fruit of the 144,000 uh, Jewish witnesses. Now, I want you to think about something. 144,000 Apostle Pauls. Only these guys can't be hurt. They're going to do miraculous things. God's going to protect them. And they're going to be uh, endowed with, with that supernatural power. That's the way they're going to be used. Um, they're going to follow the ministry of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation, uh, Moses and Elijah. Uh, but but their, their ministry is going to be spectacular. Uh, Nathan, I like to say that, you know, the, the, the time of the Great Tribulation is going to be so exciting. I mean, it's going to be the book of Acts on steroids. Uh, miracle after miracle after miracle. And it's so exciting that sometimes I would say to the Lord, Lord, I almost wish I would be there. I'd love to see that. Now, almost because I want to be with Jesus. But it's going to be a wonderful time. And I think we're not too far from that time beginning, Nathan. One other comment on this, and then I'll move on. Um, we're getting to that place. The, the time is drawing near. And I think we need to expect that God is going to do more supernatural things all over the world. But I think in our country as well. And we need, as Christians, have enough faith to believe that and walk in the power of those supernatural gifts. So, Nathan, hope that answers your question. Exciting ministry. Um, all we know is they're, they're Jews, um, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. Vin says, are all sins the same? If so, why do churches focus on sexual sins? Um, Vince, I don't think churches focus on sexual sins at all. Um, the Bible always lists sexual immorality first in the list of, of bad fruit of the flesh sins. Um, I, I think the Bible's trying to make a point. Paul says that, that when a man sins sexually, he sins against his own body. All other sins are sins committed outside his body. And the idea there is that when we sin against our own body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, um, we're actually giving Satan a, a foothold. Um, I like to call it a stranglehold on us. It is a sin that has more serious consequences and separates us from God. So so I think it's important. Sexual sin is bad. All sins are not the same, even though all sins separate us from God. And I think, Vince, when you say, why do churches focus on sexual sin? I think probably that's the only thing you hear because that's all you want to hear. You don't want to deal with the sins of your anger, the sins of unforgiveness, uh, the sins of lying, the sins of being sexually immoral. You don't want to deal with those things. So you focus on that and you, you act as though God is, and, and the you is a general you, but, but you act as though God is picking on you or the churches are picking on you because they don't understand. Sexual sin is worse than the others because it gives the enemy that stranglehold. All sin separates us from God. If we're not repentant, and repentant means I hate the sin, I'm going to stop doing it. Sexual sin is the one thing, the one thing that we do willfully 
flaunting our, our, our sin in the face of God. Let me say this to Vincent, to everybody else tonight. My Bible study in Leviticus 18 is, is a study for mature audiences because it is uh, only about our sexuality and, and the, the sexual immorality. Um, and and um, we need to take it very seriously, very serious. And um, we just don't do that. We just think God has different rules for us because there are things that we want to do. So we focus on sexual sins, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, all kinds of sexual sin, because the Bible prioritizes sexual sin. So Vince, hope that is clear to you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Hal writes in, he said, I read somewhere that David raped Bathsheba. Is that true? Um, Hal, you know, this this got gained a lot of popularity. It was all over the Internet uh, during the Me Too movement. Well, David was an abuser. David raped her. Uh, that's nonsense. It doesn't say David raped her at all. Uh, it makes it clear if you read it. Uh, with without an agenda, that they were both um, um, invested in the sexual relationship. Uh, it seems as though, now I'm not excusing David, it seems as though that she w- was setting him up to be tempted. Um, and, and they had sex. Obviously, we know that from the stories in the Bible. Uh, but no, David didn't rape her at all. David bore the responsibility for the sin. Bathsheba sinned too. She'd have to get right with God, and did, after the fact. But it was just one of those situations where um, the perfect storm of temptation was there, and they both gave in. But but it's absolute nonsense that David raped her. And they will say, well, she didn't have a choice. Because he was the king. He could do whatever he wanted. Uh, this was, and their entire relationship uh, validates this. Uh, this was a passionate relationship uh, and they truly loved one another and were inflamed with lust for one another. So this wasn't just David exercising uh, his authority. One of the things that we cannot do is apply um, 21st century American Western standards on something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. I hope that answers your question, Hal. Here's an anonymous question. If salvation is a gift, why is there so much pressure in church to receive it? Isn't it our choice? Well, that's the whole point, anonymous. It is your choice. Um, I don't know what you mean by pressure in the church to receive it, but we're to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and offer it tonight in our Old Testament Bible study. I will close it by saying, um, well, maybe not tonight because we're going to take I hope I'm going to leave some time for Q&A. But um, um, what we're going to do is, is um, um, typically what I'll do is is uh, offer anybody who's not yet born again the opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. That's not pressure. That's an opportunity. Uh, we don't try to make it emotional or drag it out or, or um, you know, keep pounding people to come forward. We just give people the opportunity. So uh, I don't think there's pressure at all. And let me say this. If this is bothering you, I would really ask you to consider whether or not this was the person of the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart saying, now, do this now. The time is late. Paul says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. And our flesh, because our flesh wants to continue sinning, our flesh likes to procrastinate. And believe me, nobody wants to procrastinate this idea of salvation with the return of our Lord so near. So you're right. It is a gift. It is freely offered to you in church. It's like Jesus is extending his hands to you and saying, I did this for you. I'm your gift. But you no doubt have to make the choice whether or not to receive that gift and, um, you know, if there's pressure, like I said, it's the Holy Spirit telling you it's time to make a decision. So, Anonymous, that's it. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR for your live calls. I think we've got enough time 
left in this half of the show to uh, to have a, a call or two to come in. Here's one from Kelly. She wants to know, is euthanasia wrong? Um, yeah, Kelly, euthanasia is always wrong. Uh, God alone has the power of life and death. And when we want to help him out, uh, we're actually taking the place of God. So euthanasia uh, is murder. Uh, Thou shalt not murder is in the uh, Ten Commandments. It has always been a sin, and it always will. And the idea that we're somehow being uh, compassionate or we're being respectful of somebody um, um, uh, in their pursuit or their their desire to die with dignity uh, is completely wrong. Because somebody who uh, does not belong to Jesus Christ If they die, the minute they leave this body, their punishment has only just begun. And it's far worse than anything they're ever going to experience on this earth. So uh, people say, yeah, but they're suffering so much. Their suffering now is nothing compared to the suffering that they will encounter the minute they leave this body. Now, I've dealt with a lot of Christians, Kelly, who in the middle of real suffering because of disease, you know, they want to go to be with the Lord. They want to be released from these bodies. And there are some times when God just keeps them around. And uh, whatever his reasons are, we've seen people get saved um, uh, during that time, uh, family members and other things. Uh, but but I understand a Christian saying, oh, merciful God, take me now. Uh, but at the same time, we who are Christians have got to be able to say, thy will, not my will, be done. So very important. Euthanasia is always wrong, and it is a tragedy, Kelly, that that uh, we've got states in our union uh, that have given their blessing to euthanasia. And it, boy, you talk about a slippery slope. That is a slippery slope. Here is a question from Mike. He wants to know, the devil can read his mind. Can the devil read my mind? Mike, no. Um, the devil can plant thoughts in your mind. We know that's true. Um, we see several instances, uh, most notably with David in the Old Testament, where where the enemy um, um, put put something in in his heart or his mind uh, that turned out to be great sin against the Lord. Um, but 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 he can't read our minds. That's important to understand. He doesn't have that kind of power. Now let me also say this about the devil. He is the greatest human psychologist and expert on how we think and predictor of our, our behavior patterns uh, uh, ever. I mean, he knows, he's watched us, um, he's, he's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for opportunities to devour us, but, but the power to know what's in our mind belongs exclusively to God, and that's something that we need to understand. Uh, one of the comment about this often, and not you don't say this, Mike, but uh, often people say, "Well, well, I don't like to pray out loud because the devil we hear." You have to worry about that. The devil hears you; he's hanging around you. The enemy, the demons are hanging around all the time. Uh, they know how to attack. And what we got to understand is, when we're walking with Jesus, when we're in prayer, then then we, the Lord is going to protect us. So it doesn't matter. You stay with Jesus. And the only thing the enemy can do now, he'll be persistent, but the only thing he can do is huff and puff and threaten to blow your spiritual house down. But he really can't do anything without the permission of God. And we know that from Job. We also know that from the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh. So rest easy, Mike. Um, You can't do that. This will probably be the last question of our program today. Angela says, why would David pray for the Holy Spirit not to go? And why does the Bible say that the Holy Spirit left Saul? How can we lose the Holy Spirit? Well, Angela, in the Old Testament, um, the Holy Spirit would come up on people uh, to perform feats of strength. When uh, Samson, as an example, all of his feats of strength, the Spirit would come upon him, and he was suddenly um, powerful. Uh, David Uh, would pray for the anointing of God to be a king. The same thing was true with Saul. Um, But but the the Spirit of God didn't remain with him. Jesus said the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. And then uh, post-resurrection, he breathed on his disciples in the Gospel of John and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. 
So the the Old Testament saints had a completely different relationship with the Holy Spirit. And so that's what David is crying out. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Is simply saying, Lord, this is my calling. This is my life. I want to honor you with it. And I sinned. I messed up. So please don't take that anointing from me. But that's what David is talking about. And of course, the Holy Spirit left Saul because Saul was was routinely disobedient to the Lord. Saul was doing Saul's thing instead of God's thing. And the punishment was the Spirit left. When Israel continually sinned against God. The Holy Spirit left the temple. It was Ichabod. The glory has departed. And the same thing is true for you and for me, Angela, when in fact we are willfully disobedient from the Lord. The Holy Spirit remains in us. He will never leave us or forsake us. But we uh, take away all of the, the source of power that is only available by pursuing holiness. So, Angela, that's why um, he would say it. That was different in the New Testament. You and I could never sing that. Um, Psalm 51, um, a lot of worship songs. We couldn't sing that in the New Testament concept. Hey, thanks for tuning in tonight. Leviticus chapter 18, mature audience only tomorrow. Beautiful Paula will be live in studio on the Date Day Show. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The word to stand on for life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.